0: Thank you to our music ministry team. Uh, It's always a joy to be together uh, in worship and uh, to participate together in music ministry. So I'm just very thankful for their gifts. Uh, At this time, we want to make sure that we dismiss our children to go downstairs if they would like to. They can head that way. And I want to take a moment just to rejoice in yesterday and the great work uh, that God did in our community we had our great giveaway yesterday, and it, it's so cool. This week, every year, is such a neat week because there's so many volunteers that are a part of CNBC who come uh, all throughout the week, and they sort, they bring items and goods from home. And then yesterday, I pulled in, and there's already a line of people going both ways, and, and it was it was just a beautiful scene as I pulled in to see some of our elders and some of our congregants, some of our lay people, uh, in that line praying with our community and uh, having the opportunity uh, to pray with people throughout the day and to just be present for our community through this ministry. Uh, it's just a, a wonderful thing, and so I just I want to give uh, our volunteers Amanda and her team a round of applause for the great work that they did yesterday. And you know, friends, it's not finished. Uh, Something that really, it actually dawned on me last night, and I thought, you know, I want to share this this morning. Uh, We have this communication form in the weekly every week. And you know, yesterday, one of the things that we collected as we prayed with folks from our community is that we collected prayer cards. A number of folks uh, were willing to offer uh, and give us ways that we could be praying for them. And we want to invite you, our community, uh, to help us pray for the folks that came yesterday. And we'd love to see uh, a team of people from CNBC praying, actively praying for people in our community. And so this isn't in or on our form today, but if you take this white prayer card or this white communication form out of your weekly today, and if you just write on this blank space on the back, hey, I would love to commit to pray for those who came to the great giveaway. We will make sure that we get those prayer concerns to you so that you can commit to praying for people in our community. It's just one way that we can continue the ongoing ministry of being present uh, and caring for those that God has placed uh, right around us here at CNBC. And so just take a moment, maybe today at some point, maybe now, maybe at the end of the service, and just indicate that you would be willing to pray for those who gave us prayer concerns yesterday on prayer cards, and there were many. And uh, we'll make sure we get that list of prayer concerns to you so that you can be praying for them. Thank you so much for helping us uh, care for our community in this way and, uh, and just love uh, those that God has placed uh, before us. So I have a question for us this morning. Uh, Let's do our memory verse first and then I'll ask the question. Uh, It'd be good not to forget that. Our memory verse is from the book of Mark and I'm excited because we're headed to Mark this fall. We're going to be going through the gospel of Mark uh, beginning in September. I'm very excited for the time we're going to spend in the gospel together. Uh, Let's say the verse for this month. Then Jesus called the crowd along with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Mark 8 34. Wonderful. Disciples certainly were looking to Jesus as their example. And so the question, as we begin our corporate time of study this morning, is who do we look for for guidance and direction? In this world, who are our mentors, who are our leaders, who are the teachers, who are the guides that we are following? As we navigate our window of time here on earth, we realize from a very young age that if we are going to make it here, if we're going to survive and thrive in any meaningful way, then we need to be willing to learn from those who have gone before us. And this begins even as young as infants and toddlers. Think about how we learn to walk. Someone holds our hands to help to keep us from falling. We look up as toddlers to those who are ahead of us, who are moving. We want to be like them. And so there's, uh, there's this uh, anxiety that's built within us. We want to learn And as we grow into our adolescent years, we learn how to talk and think and reason from those that God places around us. As teenagers and young adults, we look for examples of people who are living in congruence with the messages or the words that they're speaking. And as older adults, this trend continues. We are communal people. We don't live in isolation, or we shouldn't. And we very much need one another to learn how to love, to live, and to serve for God's glory in this space that he has planted us in. We all need consistent and faithful examples to model or pattern the attitudes and the behaviors of our lives after. And in today's text, Paul is going to address this very need. The examples among us today in this world are many. But all of us would agree, they're not all good. Amen? A lot of poor examples out there. And the same was true for this young and newly forming Christian community in the ancient Roman city of Philippi. Now, of all the Roman cities, Philippi was truly unique among them in that it tried very intentionally in its layout, in its architecture, and even in its social structures to appear as a miniature version of Rome. But was the city of Rome and the way of Rome the prime or the premier example For this first Christian community in Europe to model or follow. Or was there a better image or a better model available? For the early Christians in Philippi and for Christians, for those of us who know the Lord and who are alive in the world today. Paul wants to be clear on our source of encouragement. On who our example is. And on the eternal hope Promise to those who cling to the example. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. You can turn them on if they're on your phones, or you can turn to them if you still carry paper copies. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, looking at verses 1 to 11 today. And as we do that, we're going to be considering the following three questions First, as those who have received, and experienced encouragement in Christ, what is our appropriate response? Then, as we're being drawn together as Christian communities, whose example are we to follow? And then finally, what is the promised hope within this example that should motivate our obedience and endurance? Before we read from God's word, let's pray and ask him to help us. Father, this is a good time to be together. It's a good time to worship as a community, to recognize that you are the God who is above all. Above all powers, above all thrones, above all wonders our world has ever known. And yet, and yet, you sent your son to us. And he took the fall that we deserved. And as we approach scriptures like this, Lord, these are the ones that most disrupt us. Because we're looking into the example of the one who was perfect. And we feel so inadequate. And yet, Father, we've been given the great gift of your word, the fellowship of the saints, the presence of your Holy Spirit. And you help us. And so, Father, we ask as we gather around this text today that you would feed us from the example of your son, Jesus. Help us to form as a community of Christians that truly want to model and live out the way of Jesus in our community, knowing, knowing that it is this example, that it is this model that you use most powerfully to help your communities be salt and be light. The forces against us, the obstacles that are in our pathways are many. There are so many distractions, so many things that can pull us down. We acknowledge this morning, Lord, that we need your help, your guidance, your wisdom to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. In our time together today, we would pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11. We are going to read uh, the entire portion of 1 to 11 uh, before we start to break it down together. Philippians 2, 1 to 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others have this mind or attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As Paul is under the constant restraint of his imprisonment, he writes to encourage unity among the sisters and brothers who have gathered in Philippi. In their experience, if their experience of being found in Christ is meaningful, then it should be seen in the effect that it is having in their lives. Paul's words are specific as he describes what a true life in Christ produces, both within congregations of disciples and the individual believers who are a part of those congregations. In his words, at the beginning of this text, you notice that Paul is employing an effective linguistic or rhetorical tool. It's one that we commonly still use today. He's using if-then statements over and over again. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if we have found comfort through the example of his love if we are enjoying the sweet fellowship of sharing in the same spirit, a spirit that is to be producing fruit within our communities, if we have both given and received a commonwealth of affection and mercy, then complete my joy and be of the same mind. A united community shares the same mind with the same love. United in the same spirit with one purpose. Paul's emphasis is on what should become same. As within our Christian communities, we are all partaking of the same body and being formed in the same image. The body of Christ and the image of Christ. Our mind, our individual minds and our corporate mind is the mind of Christ. The way we love formed by the example of Christ, the Spirit of God, fueling and guiding our thoughts and our attitudes as we are sharing together in a unified purpose. And when a community of disciples, the church... When we come together and we share the mind of Christ and the attitude of Christ and we embody the love that he showed and we're powered by the Spirit of God, not our own efforts and our own abilities towards one common purpose, then there is a peace or a true maturity found within the Christian community. And what does this produce? What does this produce In Paul's mind, complete my joy. What a beautiful thing. Friends, it is a beautiful thing when brothers and sisters in Christ dwell together in unity. It is a hard thing today. Let's not take that for granted in this world that we live in. It is difficult And it is one of the ways that we shine as a counter-cultural example of what it looks like to be in Christ. But a fair question, following verse 2. What is the one purpose that the Christian community is to pursue? Paul says we're to have one purpose. He anticipates that this question is going to come in the mind of his readers. And he begins to unpack his response in verses 3 to 11. First, in verses 3 to 5, Paul unleashes the church on a singular pursuit. One that we can truly unite around an ask that is as bold as it is uncomfortable for the, for those who will embrace it and put it into practice then in verses 5 to 8 paul's going to go on to describe how jesus has perfectly demonstrated the way in which we collectively and individually should go about this pursuit before finally in verses 9 to 11 turning to how god responded to the perfect way That was laid forth by Jesus. Let's begin with Paul's purpose as it's revealed in verse 3. Take a look again. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity. Each of you should in humility be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. As I was wrestling with this. Text this week, a question came to mind. What does selfish ambition and vanity look like in the Christian community? And while today we're going to have plenty of time to explore the positive demonstration of this purpose in Christ, I do think it's important that we reflect on the more difficult realities that exist. There is selfish ambition there is vanity present in congregations throughout the world today and when they rear their ugly heads how do we know what should we be looking for well the clues are in the text anytime i'm not moved to treat another person as more important than myself i'm not pursuing paul's greater purpose for the Christian community. Anytime I'm more concerned about getting my own way, pushing or pursuing my own interests above the interest of the broader community, I'm not pursuing Paul's greater purpose for the Christian community. Sometimes we find agendas that are unwilling to yield to the greater interests or desires of the broader church. And Paul says it's okay to be concerned about our own interest, but those interests need to be restrained and constrained by the interest of others as well. Not only should we be concerned with our own interests, but also with the interests of others. Of others. This means that the popular. And often practiced attitude within our culture. We see this everywhere. That if I don't get my own way. And they don't choose to play the game by my rules. Or the things that I want. And they don't do the things that I want them to do. Then I'm going to take my ball. And go home. Or to whatever playing field or whatever place I want to play. It's an attitude that's out of order with a Christian community that's been called to bear with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love means sometimes I will not like the things that happen. Sometimes the decisions that are made won't be the decisions that I wanted. And true humility in these situations, the humility of Christ, requires that we stay within communities that are imperfect, rather than always looking for greener grass somewhere else. This is a challenge in our culture, everywhere. You've heard it said. It's why we have this colloquialism: the grass is always greener. Did you ever see that cow with its neck so far out? And you wonder, is it worth getting zapped as you pull the head back in? Was that little blade of grass worth it, buddy? I hope so. It it just and we get there and we settle in and we find out. Oh my. There really are no perfect, there are no perfect places of employment out there. I thought my old job was really bad, but man, I got into this new one. And and man, it was great at first, but I just don't know now. It turns out the people here are pretty bad, too. Man. (laughs) It's all right here. (laughs) Not talking about here. (laughs) Well and we do we do it with other things, right? We do it with schools. We see us everywhere today with schools, whatever choice. Right? Private school, public school, home school, it could be any version of school. School's not something we want it to be or doing something the way we like it to be. We just pull out and do it ourselves. Or go do it someplace else. Some other person can do it better, some other place can do it better. But friends, as long as we're here on earth, the reality is here we are always going to be in messy and imperfect communities. Because we're messy and imperfect people. And we clean up really nice on Sunday morning. And we try to. But we can get a little bit behind the scenes and know that each of us has a drunk junk drawer. We come in, my, We have a lot of junk drawers <laughs> In my house. Imperfect schools, imperfect families, imperfect communities, imperfect places of employment. A nation that's imperfect. Our churches are also imperfect. And the attitude of Christ, the mind of Christ, the humility that it takes to accept this reality and to thrive and have effect in it. One that allows us to live within that messiness and that imperfection and still say, it is well. It is well. Is an attitude that recognizes that, you know, it's probably no better over here in this other space. I should stick in. You know, Paul's writing these words from prison. He was not comfortable. Difficult, imperfect, messy community. How do I live humbly with the best interest of others in view, considering others more important than myself while imprisoned? And here and now, what's he doing? At the beginning of chapter two, he's encouraging the church. He's providing encouragement from a prison cell. The singular purpose that Paul is calling the Christian community to embrace and pursue is the mind and the attitude of Jesus. And friends, I have found this to be true in my ministry experience, that when communities of Christians, when communities of believers come together and actually do This. There's little room for division. There is great room for unity. Because He is one body, He is one Lord, He is one Christ. He's given us one faith, we've shared in one baptism. We partake of one meal together. We are one body. A body of Christ. This is our attitude. This is our example. This is our mind. So it follows. What does the mind or the attitude of Christ look like as Jesus has demonstrated it? And there is an example here, a clear example. We can look at verses 5 and 6. Paul says, you should have the same attitude, mind, toward one another that Christ Jesus had. Who, though he existed huge in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. Though he was equal with God, he did not make his equality with God the sole focus of his identity. Jesus is the exact representation of God, the fullness of God, very God of God. He's deserved of this glory and honor and praise. And he laid down the very thing that we would identify or say would be most precious to him, physical closeness with the Father, He laid it down. My goodness. Could you imagine one day we talk about getting to heaven, right? Talking about what it's going to be like in the presence of God in heaven. Could you imagine one day having finally attained to that and being in the physical presence of God? Looking at him as someone who's not God and saying, this has been nice, but I'll go back and help those people now. It's incredible. Equality with the Father was the position of Jesus. And he relinquished that position to incarnate or make himself present with us. And now watch what he does. Instead of regarding equality with God as something to be grasped or held on to, it says in verse 7, he emptied himself by taking on the form of of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. There's three actions here distinct. First, Jesus empties himself. Now throughout history, theologians and pastors and teachers have struggled, admittedly, to define the depths of what this concept means because we're not God and we don't live from his vantage point it's it's hard for us to put this one into words what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself one word that scholars have used is a word that we're not going to get into the depths of the day you can write it down if you want to go research it kenosis k-e-n-o-s-i-s It connotes that Jesus willingly veiled some of his God qualities without becoming less than God. That's very, very, very important. One thing is for certain. Whatever this concept of Jesus' self-emptying means, he was always and is always eternally, fully God. But what this phrase suggests is that in some manner, while he was on earth accomplishing the work that the Father had given him to do, Jesus obediently and submissively accepted God's will as his own. This means that in order to truly live as a man, he had to somehow veil the effect and power of Of his deity. I don't know how he did this. One day friends. This will be a great question to ask God. In heaven. To what extent? And how did did your emptying of yourself. How did that work? We wrestled with that one God. Here on earth. Many many years. He empties himself. He gives up his life. We sang it today. He becomes sin. Without sinning. He's crucified and buried by the very ones that he had a part in creating. And God's power at work within him raises him from the dead. And what is captivating about this whole reality is that as as God, at any point, Jesus had the power within himself, as God, to vanquish and destroy his enemies. And yet, he remained obedient. Not considering himself as equal with God as something to hold on to. Jesus knows that God is going to be glorified by this tremendous act of love. And he knows that many sons and many daughters will be brought to glory through his sacrifice and obedience. So as Paul suggests in verse 7, Jesus serves humanity. And this is confirmed by Jesus himself. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus takes on the form of a slave. It's characterized by him being willing to look like other men. The evidence that Jesus truly empties himself is recognized in this incredible action of taking on the form of a slave and coming to serve. Now, over the last three to four years, we've heard a lot of talk in our culture, in our world. A lot of slogans, a lot of phrases have been thrown out there. Love over fear, faith over fear, courage. We've seen messages about that and boldness and all of this stuff. But do we want to really look at courage personified? Do we want to really look at faith personified? Because this is it. Right here. Jesus' example. Courage personified. The greatest act of love was also, all at once, the greatest act of courage in the history of humanity. This is it. For going to say things like faith over fear or love over fear, if we're going to encourage sisters and brothers to live courageously in this world, then the example that we should point them to or aim them at is this example in Philippians 2. The example of Jesus. And as we do this, to, to keep a mindset that is focused on doing the will of the Father, living as holy and set apart. As Paul later will go on to say in verses 15 to 16 in this very same chapter. I love this. We've had our, some of our children uh, from time to time have had to copy this verse. It's a good one. Some of these verses. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. We could just preach a whole message right there, right? We'll stop. So that. So that. You may be blameless and pure, children of God, without blemish, though you live in a crooked and perverse society in which you shine as lights in the world by not clinging to something that the culture tells us that we should cling to or the world tells us that we should cling to, but by holding on to what? The word of life. cling to that so that on the day of Christ I will have reason to boast that I did not run in vain nor labor in vain in if- the As we're living out this model and this example of Jesus in our world, the very thing, the very one we are to cling to is described in verse 16, the word of life, and it's a deep phrase, it's a meaningful phrase, it's a phrase that encompasses Jesus, His word, and the hope of the gospel. When you see that term, word of life, it really carries all three of those things together in one phrase. It's beautiful. We follow the attitude of Jesus when we lay down the valuables that the world or the culture tells us to cling to in favor of clinging to Jesus and his word. Serving Jesus, his church and the people he draws into our lives with the life giving hope of the gospel. I saw this yesterday in so many ways, alive and active here in our own community, as some of our folks were out and about sharing, just sharing with those The hope of the gospel. I actually had a man pray with me. You know how cool that is? When you ask somebody if they can pray with them and then you pray with them and they say, can I, his name is Philip, say, can I pray with you? I said, well, yeah, let's do it. It's hope. What a beautiful thing. Pray with another brother or sister in Christ. Someone we don't even know. We heard that testimony from our students that went on the trip. One of the highlights was getting to walk around town and just pray with people. Jesus, he's emptying himself. He's taking on the form of a slave. And then finally, as Paul describes in verse 7, he shares in human nature. Man, I think about all that Jesus did. And, And I think about the cross and that night in the garden, and he's sweating drops of blood, and and I just think, Lord, oh, like, how easy it would have been to say, okay, I will do this, but haven't, come on, Lord, God, isn't it, haven't we done enough now? Do I really have to do this? To the point of death. Think about And we can't, the text, the Gospels, do not let us escape the reality that the moments leading up to Jesus' death were hard for Him. This is where we see the humanity of Jesus on display. Whereas God, He could have taken the easy way out and disassociated Himself from it, not felt the pain and just went through it. Just to go through the motions. But that's not what we see in the text. What we see in the text. Is a man who's fully aware. Still being fully God. That what he is about to do. On the cross. Is going to be physically painful. And tormenting to him. He understands that. He knows what the nails are going to feel like as they're driven into his hands. He understands what that crown of thorns is going to do to his scalp as it's pushed down upon his head. He knows how the beating is going to feel, the lash of the whip, the mocking of the men. It's all real, friends. Everything that happened to Jesus truly happened. And he truly felt it. He shared in human nature. Verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And then the exclamation mark. Even death on a cross. The most humiliating form of death imaginable in his day. The life of discipleship is not a life for the faint of heart. It's not comfortable, friends. God never promised us comfort here on earth. It's not easy. He never promised or asked us to coast off on a free ride, easy ride into eternity. To walk while carrying a cross is to know, embrace, and live at an uncommon and quite frankly culturally unacceptable and socially uncomfortable level of sacrifice and humility. A mentor of mine used to always say, uh, when we would talk about things like this, he'd always say, Chris, something has to look different. If Jesus has really made a difference in your life, then something has to look different from the ways of the world around us. Jesus did this. He did it all the way to the point of death, the most humiliating death. And what should be so promising for us today is that living in this way, though it is uncomfortable, though it is culturally unacceptable, Though it is uncommon, living in this way is filled with hope. We sang about hope today too, Scott. It's like we plan these things out. (laughs) It's filled with hope. We're going to see it. Right in these next grouping of verses, God's power is perfected in our weakness. He's promised to use the foolish or the weak in the eyes of the world, to confound the strong. He raises up and he exalts the lowly for his own glory, for his own name's sake. And it's an outcome that Paul invites us to rehearse in verses 9-11. to Take a look. As a result of Jesus' actions, his attitudes, his mind, the way that he lived, as a result of him being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, God highly exalted him. And gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and on under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The example of Jesus is a picture of power and weakness. It's a picture of humility of self-denying, sacrificial love, of willing, joyful obedience, even in the face of brutal discomfort, and through it, God making his name known throughout the nations. So in the death of Jesus, the action that in many ways represented his coronation, we find the upside down inside out forward back nature of the kingdom of god and we see a clear principle established in the economy of god's kingdom there is indescribable wealth in humility and overflowing abundance in weakness you see the culture in the world tells us that if we live this way we're going to lose Because everything's about winning and losing in the world that we live. If we live this way, there's going to be lack. Someone else is going to win. There's not going to be enough for us. It's never true for the people of God. Ever, 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 ever. I have come that they may have life. And that life is abundant. And it's eternal. There is no lack for the person of God. There is indescribable wealth as we live in this humility. And there is overflowing abundance as we embrace our weakness. Because God is magnified when we are weak, He is strong. Paul envisions. As he transitions in verse 9 with the words, As a result of Jesus' obedience unto death on the cross, God highly exalts Jesus and gives him a name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus everyone bows and every tongue confesses. One day, friends, every knee will bow. Today might be the day, if you're here, if you're listening, if you're in this room, if you're watching online, today might be the day that your knee or your heart will bow and receive Jesus as Lord. For the first time. This is the greatest. What you're seeing in Philippians 2. Is the greatest act of love. It's an act that has reverberated. Throughout eternity. God the Son giving up his position. With God the Father. And as a part of this act. By the best words that we can describe it. Jesus takes on the flesh of humanity. He participates in human nature. And all that's a part of it. Except for sin. He lives perfectly. Without blemish. Without sin. And doing so in order that one day when his father called, he would lay down his life, taking the punishment that we deserved, covering the debt of our sins and canceling our sentence of death. All of this, friends, so that as we sit here today, as you watch from home, we would have a way to be made right with God. Jesus is the only way. Amen? He is the only way to be made right with God. The way he describes himself as the way, the truth, and the life. All who come through the Father, through Jesus, acknowledging and turning from their sins, calling upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. And this salvation isn't for our glory, though one day we will be glorified. It's for God's Glory, salvation, belongs to the Lord. This is the gospel, friends. This is the good news. We have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and God did not leave us dead in our trespasses and sins, but he sent a solution, and that solution was his Son. He went to the cross. He died for our sins. There is a good and gracious Savior who is alive and able to set us free today and make us righteous, and his name is Jesus. And I have to tell you today that this this free gift of salvation, friends, it's not something we earn. It's not something we work towards. It's not something that we merit. It's free, and it's available right now. To anyone who's listening, to anyone who's here, there's nothing you have to do. The Bible says, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that he's been raised from the dead. You will be saved. That's it. If you've never known a love like the love that was described in this text today, I pray that right now, we're going to give you the opportunity. We're going to all bow our heads together And we're going to pray we're going to give you the opportunity right now. Now's the time. Now's the moment. You're hearing the gospel. There's no need to wait. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth. And today can be the day of your salvation. Bow with me. God, the example of your son, Jesus, in so many ways, leaves us speechless. We see it, we know it's something that we cannot attain to. Lord, we know that you have to do the work. And what a beautiful reality as we look in the text that you have through your son Jesus. And what great hope to know as we gather around a text like this today that anyone in the sound of my voice this morning, can hear these words, can be in darkness, but in an instant brought into light by the power of your Spirit regenerating from within and drawing them unto salvation. And so I pray right now, Father, if there is anyone who has heard this message today, who has seen this example of Christ and has been intrigued or captivated by it, They would simply say, Lord, I believe. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I confess that he is Lord. I acknowledge that I cannot save myself. That I am a sinful person that's in need of a Savior. And Lord, right now, in these moments, I turn my life over to you. I want to live like the example I see set forth before me in these words today. And I know I can only do that through the power of your son and his spirit at work within me. Help me, Father. I pray that you would save save me today. In Jesus' name, amen. Our team's going to come this morning. And we're going to close in a song. And I want to to say that if you prayed that prayer today for the first time, whether you're a a teenager, whether you're a 40-year adult, or whether you're a 120-year adult, I don't care how old you are, let us know. Take that communication form in your weekly. If you're here in person, write on it, fill it out, put it in the box in the back. Somebody will call you this week and pray with you. If you're watching online, there's a link you can click on right underneath the screen where you could just respond. and Just say, hey, I prayed the prayer of salvation today. I'd like to have a pastor, or a church leader, or an elder call me and pray with me. We'd love to do that. Uh, we'd love to celebrate that salvation with you today. Team, would you lead us in our final song?